what's happening everybody welcome back to another episode of on the mix i am your host Lindsay, and on today's episode i thought i would dive deep into the story behind white snakes david coverdale and tawny katane their relationship how she came into the picture how she kind of helped white snake to be very very successful in america and a little bit of white snake's background david's background it's really fascinating the story to me i truly had no idea that david was really doing a wide breadth of things before he even entertained the idea of white snake and that really he was really hoping that the white snake 1987 album that has the songs that are very popular here i go again which is the most popular that that would be a success because if it wasn't that was going to be the end of white snake so i'm literally just going to jump right on into it no ranting from me today i'm just going to go right on into the story so i first want to give a little bit of background into who tawny katane is and i'm sure a lot of you are probably familiar with the very very popular music video for here i go again with tawny she is the red-headed beautiful red-headed lady in the white negligee doing cartwheels on the two Jaguars, you know, and her dancing and stuff. Like, she's very synonymous with that whole um, MTV kind of, like, femme fatale kind of, like, vixen-y type of bombshell beauty, if you will, if you want to call it that. But she wasn't only in that one video. She was in a couple of White Snakes videos. And let's just get right into her backstory. There isn't a whole lot of information about her history, like her backstory, before she met up with Dave and Whitesnake, but she was born Julie Catane in San Diego, California in 1961. She is the oldest of three kids born to her parents, Linda and Terry Catane. And by the age of 12, she insisted on being called Tawny. So that was her nickname. She insisted that people call her Tawny from that point on. As a child, she struggled with dyslexia, which led her to drop out of high school. And at age 14, she had backstage passes to a Peter Frampton concert. Now, this is a very important signifier in her timeline at this point because she has backstage passes to Peter Frampton. She goes backstage and she sees the special treatment that Peter Frampton's girlfriend, Penny, was getting from not only the fans, but from everybody backstage, like the crew, the musicians, everybody. And that's like the groupie mentality, especially back then. That's kind of what you would do back then. Well, if you wanted to anyway, like you would basically follow bands wherever they would go. And you would be known as like the groupie that would hang out with everybody. And you would like rub elbows with these people and you would have all the special access to these people and to the special treatment and anything that you wanted. And so when she saw this firsthand at this Peter Frampton concert at Balboa Stadium, she said that this is the life that she wanted to lead. So she quickly turned her sights on getting into modeling, and then the modeling turned into getting into small parts on TV and film. Like she did one movie with Tom Hanks, I believe that was called Bachelor Party. Um, I've never seen that film, but that's one of the films that she's done. You know, she appeared in kind of like... Not major TV commercials, but she would do a couple of commercials and things in the early 80s. And at this point in time, she was dating Rats guitarist Robin Crosby. And so 
because she was dating the guitarist for the hair metal band Rat, you know, the band that does the song round and round, what goes around, comes around, whatever. I don't like that tune, to be fair. But that's the band I'm talking about here. So she actually appeared on the cover of Rat's debut EP, which is self-titled. She also appeared on their debut album called Out of the Cellar that appeared in 1984. She already was kind of getting her foot in the door musically with that whole thing there with getting involved with Rat's guitarist, Robin. So that's kind of her backstory. And then from there, it'll segue nicely into Whitesnake. So now I'm going to get into David Coverdale and what his backstory is, because it's really fascinating to me as I was looking up interviews about him and seeing how he talks about his life and the music industry. And I don't know, his view on things is very down to earth and very humble. He's a very intellectual man as well. He's very smart and very eloquent with his words and things. Just listen to him talk. Honestly, go on YouTube and find any kind of interview. His accent, his nice Yorkshire accent is very, very nice to the ear. Very deep voice. It's just very nice. I could hear him talk for hours. But all that aside, let's get into David Coverdale's backstory. David was born on the 22nd of September in 1951 in Saltburn by the Sea, which is in Yorkshire. And Yorkshire is in the north of England. At around age 14, he began performing and developing his singing voice. He said he actually got, or he thinks that he got his singing voice from his mother's side because apparently she would sing all the time and she had a great voice. So he thought that he got the musical abilities from his mother. So, you know, he would practice, you know, technically working on his vocal abilities. You know, he said that he would like practice singing from his stomach, you know, his diaphragm instead of just singing in a talking voice kind of way. So he would work on his technique. And by this time in the 60s, he started performing with local bands in the Yorkshire area in particular that he worked with. So a couple of those here and there he would lend his vocal abilities and talents to. So the year that we're coming up on for David at this point in the timeline is 1973, so he's very young. David happened upon an article in a copy of Melody Maker magazine. Deep Purple was auditioning for singers to replace Ian Gillian and or Gillian, sorry. <laughs> One of the groups that David had sang for back in Yorkshire was called The Government. And the government had played with Deep Purple on the same bill during a show in 1969. So the two bands were familiar with each other. Isn't that just funny happenstance? This is great because now David already knows Deep Purple. Deep Purple already knows of David. So he goes to send them a tape with some of his vocal abilities on it. And then he later auditioned for them. And then he officially was brought into Deep Purple, into the band. A year later, in February of 1974, Deep Purple released their first album with David called Burn, which released in the U.S. on the 20th of March 1974 and in the U.K. on July the 1st. In April of that year, David and Deep Purple performed to over 200,000 fans on his first trip to the United States at the California Jam. So David was kind of really making the rounds now. He was really starting to get ingrained into the music scene, into the music culture in a, in a very mainstream kind of fashion. 
In December of 1974, Deep Purple released their follow-up album called Stormbringer. Guitarist Richie Blackmore left the band in June of the following year, 1975, mostly because the band was starting to kind of change their musical influences and their sound. Um, They were kind of playing with a bit more soul and funk into their music, and Richie was like not having it. He was all about the rock and roll, and so he decided to leave. This would be a very interesting point in Deep Purple's history because the band thought to themselves, well, Richie is our main guitarist and he left the band. How are we ever going to continue without him? But David Coverdale really made sure that they were to keep going. You know, David really wanted to make sure that the band kept going and said, no, 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 listen, you have to keep going. We have to keep making music. You can't just disband. We have to keep going. So he actually helped to bring on guitarist Tommy Bolin, who was a member of the James Gang, and he was also a member of the Billy Cobham band. And so he was already a big name guitarist, and David brought him into Deep Purple, and this totally flipped the band in a really massive way. They only released one studio album with Tommy Bolin called Come Taste the Band in 1975, but... Deep Purple has gone on to say that without David Coverdale pushing for them to continue on the band that they would have quit right there. Unfortunately, though, this was the beginning of the end, however, because the album was less successful than their previous records. And at the end of the tour in March 1976, David Coverdale reportedly knew that his time in the band was up. He just kind of, I think, intuitively knew that this was going to be it. So he walked off of the stage in tears and he told the band that he was quitting, to which he was told that there was no band left to quit because Deep Purple had dissolved. There was no more Deep Purple after that point. So now Deep Purple is gone. Deep Purple is no more. David has to now recover, but he still wants to be in the music industry. So what does he do? He embarks on a very extremely brief solo career, literally like one year barely two albums, like very, very brief solo career. And he released his first album in February of 1977 called Whitesnake. That was the catalyst for him naming his actual band Whitesnake. So very interesting. All the songs on his solo album were written by himself and guitarist Mickey Moody. As his first solo effort, David later admitted that it's very difficult to think back and talk sensibly about the first album. White Snake, the album, had been a very inward-looking, reflective, and low-key affair in many ways, written and recorded as it was in the aftermath of the collapse of Deep Purple. And even though in its own respects his solo album wasn't successful, of course we know the title of it inspired the massive band that we all know today as Whitesnake. So not far into recording his second album called North Winds, he already was starting to form Whitesnake. So this is what I'm saying. He wasn't even really that deep into his solo career before he started embarking on his next music project. So he quickly formed the band Whitesnake with Bernie Marsden and Mickey Moody. And this is a really interesting point is that Whitesnake purely started off solely just as a touring band for David's solo music. It wasn't going to be a major band. It was not going to be what it is known as today. 
It simply was, I have an album of music that I want to go on tour and perform. I need a touring band. Let me get these people on to tour the album with me. While I really like working with them, what if we made an actual band out of this? And that's what Whitesnake is. So that's a really fascinating fact for me to learn is they were just a touring band that formed into a massively successful hair metal band today. I think that's very fascinating. So in early 1978, the band released their EP called Snakebite, and that was the very beginning of their working career. So what's very important to note about this story, too, that involves Tawny, of course. Um, she helps bring Whitesnake into the mainstream in America. Whitesnake was very popular in Europe. There was no point of contention there. They were extremely popular, obviously, in their home country of the UK, and Europe at large, Asia, you know, all across the board, they were very popular over in their little subsection. However, North America was very stubborn. They were not so easy to break through success over there. And it was very difficult for them to gain and acquire that success. And it's been that way for a lot of UK bands for a very long time, because for some reason, the North American market is very particular for some reason. I don't know why, but it's very particular with what bands from the UK and Europe at large will make it mainstream over here and make it popular. I don't know why that is, but Whitesnake was trying to figure out how do we bridge the gap? How do we come in and, and really sell North America? You know, and so David, what's fascinating about David is he was right on the money. He knew what was going on. He was watching MTV and MTV at the time was starting to come into its own and he was watching MTV. He was seeing that over in America, they were very glam. Like you had Motley Crue, for example, Guns N' Roses was to come later. Um, you know, you had Twisted Sister and stuff and Kiss. You had a lot of those like glam metal bands that were very fanciful that had the frou-frou kind of, uh, you know, messy mullet hair and the distressed jeans and the leather and things like that. And so David thought to himself, hmm, why don't I dye my hair blonde? You know, put some highlights in there by changing the band's look and my look and by bringing on a new guitarist into the band that has a lot of credence and a lot of power on his own, that is what helped make Whitesnake really popular, but Tawny really pushed the envelope with that in terms of the North American angle. So those changes that David made to the band and Tawny coming in, seriously, it really helped propel them and give them the foothold they needed to break through to North America. In 1984, the album slided in went to number 40 in the US, but it wasn't considered a massive hit by any means over here. And just before the album was to be released in the US, this is when David made these changes, you know, to his hair, and he brought on a new guitarist, John Sykes, and he was a guitarist for Thin Lizzy. We all know Thin Lizzy is really, really great. So he brings on John Sykes into the band, and he changes up the look. And John really helped to bring a more contemporary aggressive guitar sound with him and he had the the stage manners to match and he helped propel white snake just that little bit more and it was these calculated moves that david made that helped white snake gain that potential success for america david actually recalled that whole moment by saying this 
Until David Geffen called me, I didn't really work America as Whitesnake. I worked the rest of the world. In fact, in 84, I had broken all attendance and merchandise records in Europe, but I still lost three grand. My first marriage was in tatters, and then David Geffen called up and said, It is about time that you took America seriously. There was nothing to keep me in London, so rather than taking pot shots at America from across the pond, I decided to relocate, and I had an extraordinary five years. So yeah, it's my understanding that David moved to Lake Tahoe in America, obviously, around this time as well to also further integrate himself into the American culture. And this is where he would meet Tawny. But from my understanding, I don't, I think he still lives in Lake Tahoe and or he just has like a house in Lake Tahoe. I don't know if he permanently still lives in Lake Tahoe, but he did take America seriously and he did that by relocating as well as everything else that I had just previously mentioned to you. So he was really trying to take shots at America. So in 1985, John Sykes and David started working on new songs for the next album, but David developed a sinus infection that made it impossible, obviously, for the band to record any music. He did eventually recover, however, before the album was to be recorded officially, David booted out John Sykes from the band. You know, I haven't looked further into that, but apparently the split between the two of them wasn't a friendly one. You know, there's still a bit of controversy today as to what really happened there and why, but that's basically what happens. You know, the show must go on from there. So over these next few years, you know, David stated that the next album was a make or break album for not only himself, but for Whitesnake at large. He said that if this 1987 album was not successful, that he would 100% permanently dissolve Whitesnake from that point. He would have no more of it. He would say, that's it, throwing in the towel. There's no more. You know, we've been working at this for years and years and years. You know, he was going to be totally finished. You know, he had already lost a bit of money, you know, from trying to make Whitesnake very big. He had already made these changes. John Sykes got the boot from the band and their albums weren't breaking the American market that could help them gain further fame. This was a really make or break deal for him and the band. And he was very certain that if this next album was not the one that he would totally dissolve the band permanently. So during 87 and 88, finally, North America was won over with the release of their 1987 self-titled album called White Snake, and this is the one that has the main songs on it, particularly the one that I'm referencing the most, Here I Go Again. It also has Is This Love on it. That's one of my favorite tunes. I'm glad that it was the big album for him and that White Snake has continued because they're great. So finally, they broke the American market with that album. It peaked at number two on the U.S. Billboard 200 for 10 non-consecutive weeks. Whitesnake was the band's highest charting album in the U.S., and it peaked at number eight on the U.K. on their album charts. So now I'm going to get into the ever-popular music video and the song, Here I Go Again, and how it all came to fruition. So the song was written by David and Bernie Marsden. 
there was a switch up of this song mostly in its pacing and in the lyrics because from my understanding it was recorded in a blues type of sound and for this album he was presenting the tune for the album in that kind of slow pacing with different lyrics and that bluesy tune but the record label executives really were trying to say you have to make it more rock you can't make this a blues tune it has to be changed and make the pace a bit faster so hey when david geffen himself tells you to do something i think you do it right and so that's what david did and he also changed the lyrics up a little bit this is pretty funny so the chorus of the original version of the song goes like this here i go again on my own going down the only road i've ever known like a hobo, I was born to walk alone. Initially, hobo was put in there, but he changed it to drifter at some point. But drifter, the word drifter, was used in a couple of their tunes already. So he changed it back to hobo. But then he's like, no, I really think it should be drifter, though. And so it eventually officially became drifter because he reportedly wanted to make sure that people would not mishear him saying hobo, and he didn't want people thinking he was actually saying homo. I just thought that was pretty funny. There were two music videos for Here I Go Again. The first was 1982 when that song was done a little different, and this music video features solely the band performing on stage. Like, that's it. But the one that we all know and love today was the 1987 version with the re-recorded song. And this one featured Tawny, of course. So Tawny and David had met kind of like serendipitously, if you will. And it was kind of love at first sight, if you will. And they were dating at this point. It's interesting because Tawny was actually not the first choice of model to be used in the music video. At the time, there was this famous model named Claudia Schiffer. And she was kind of the girl or the face of guest jeans at the time. So she was actually going to be used, but as the circumstances had it, Tawny was put in her place. So the story goes, David and Tawny were out to dinner one night and he got a phone call from the director and Marty said, we have a problem, come over to my house to talk about it. So David and Tawny go to Marty's house and when Marty opened the door, Marty immediately blurted out, she's the girl, she's the girl, she's the one. And so it came as quickly as that. Tawny then became the girl for the video. And she is synonymous with that whole kind of scene. Her whole career pretty much boils down to that one video and also her marriage to David Coverdale. So the two do end up getting married, but they only get married or they stay married for two years. But either way, they do eventually become like the hot item of the time. It's just really interesting that, like, that whole thing really happened. It was so serendipitous. You know, it never would have happened this way if Claudia Schiffer had actually been the one to be in the video. But as fate would have it, Tawny was the girl. So the music video here, her dance moves were 100% unchoreographed. Like, she just went up there and she did her cartwheels and her little spins and her, you know, flipping of the hair. All of that was totally unchoreographed. Not to say that she was like a professional dancer by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, she came in with a little bit of, of some moves like, 
hey, let me show you my move. I mean, the opening move that she does is her cartwheeling onto one jaguar to another. I mean, come on. That is so iconic right from the word go. So the two jags in the video, the two jags, there was a black one and a white one, obviously. David, David Coverdale, he had one jag. The, the white one was his. And Marty Colner, who was the video director for the video, his was black. So those were the two jags. And David even recalled that he brought Paula Abdul onto the set. Paula Abdul was like up and coming in her music, but also she was a dancer. And so David brought Paula onto the set to try to see if Paula could teach Tawny some dance moves for the video. Apparently, Paula turned right back around to David and said, listen, there's nothing that I can show her. Like, she's good. She's good to go. I ain't got nothing to do here. My work here is done. Bye-bye. I'm leaving. There was nothing Paula Abdul could even do for Tawny. Tawny already knew what to do, and Tawny had it in the bag. My girl had it in the bag, so no worries there. And it's of my understanding as well that David still has his white jaguar that appeared in that video. It was actually used in a future White Snake song called Shut Up and Kiss Me that was released in 2019. There you go. I mean, you got two videos out of that Jag for the price of one Jaguar. And listen, okay, I think I have to kind of put emphasis on how important this video was. This video probably, probably, this is my own opinion, it probably started a counterculture, especially with like MTV and stuff, but it created this whole wave of music videos where you would use like this bombshell beautiful girl in your videos, especially for like rock videos and stuff like the metal scene and all that. It really helped to solidify her place in kind of the youth culture as well. But also she 100% played a massive role in bringing Whitesnake into the mainstream and bringing them a lot more fame in America simply because of her good looks. You could almost consider Tawny like the Farrah Fawcett like of her time. Tawny was kind of that, but for music videos, you know what I'm saying? Like, people reference that video and Tawny and all of that even today. Like, it's just very famous. The video back in the day in 1987 was actually placed on the New York Times list of 15 essential hair metal videos. I think it really did what it needed to do. It really helped to bring Whitesnake into the popular scene, music scene, of America in the 80s that were transitioning into the 90s, but in the latter part of the 80s. I mean, this was massive. Like, this was huge. Music videos had the massive potential, especially in their infancy back then, to be the standard for what bands needed to acquire or to achieve in order to attract people to their music. And that's essentially what music videos were. So Whitesnake really helped to grab the attention of the American people by putting this beautiful redheaded girl in front of your face and she's doing flips and stuff on the Jaguars and you got David Coverdale with his sultry voice singing to you and it's a wrap from there. People are like, yep, I'm going to buy that album. I'm going to buy this cassette. I'm going to buy this CD. I'm going to follow Whitesnake and buy their tickets to see them live. It totally worked. So this is a quote from David himself that talks about basically what I just said. And he says, as you know, Tawny is synonymous with Whitesnake with MTV. This iconic, amazing beauty brought so much attention to my music. Once you go, oh my god, she is gorgeous. You go, wow, the songs aren't bad either. 
that's true. It's like, firstly, it's visual. Secondly, oh, the music's actually pretty decent as well. So, and this is a little quote that I wanted to put in here at the very end on the inspiration behind this song, Here I Go Again, because to be honest, I kind of like brush past the lyrical content of this tune. I really truly did. Like, yeah, I understood it basically, but I really took for granted like how truly impactful the lyrics are in this tune. So David goes on to say about Here I Go Again that it's an old song that I wrote about the breakup of my first marriage. I had rented a villa in the Algarve, the southern coast of Portugal, opposite Africa, with my young daughter and my wife, and I ended up sleeping in separate rooms. We just went from being the best of friends to not being the best of friends. And here I go again was about that and crying in the rain. I'm only inspired by events in my life to document. There are three themes that are really prevalent. I had given up on arguing with myself years ago about love songs. Because every time I sit down, it's never with the intentions of writing a love song. But now, everyone has a here-I-go-again story about a time in their life, either a sad time or a joyful time. And we already had American Radio's incredible support from the Slide It In record. So, they were ready for the 87 record. And yes, 100%, David is spot on. And what he means kind of in part is, you know, listen, the song Here I Go Again is about not really understanding where you're going in life. Maybe you thought that you knew and you're reflecting back on your past, but you can only look forward and just know, you know, you might think that you're walking alone on this road to uncertainty, but you're really not. You're really not. You might think that you are, but you're not. And so it's, it, you know, obviously I don't think I need to tell you the symbolism behind the song, I don't think I need to go that deep. I think everyone kind of knows on the surface level what the song is inferring, but it's a really, really interesting video and it's a very interesting song and it all came together in such a nice little package that truly encapsulates for me, I think anyway, a story of pers perseverance and keeping on keeping on and not letting your dreams or letting your goals slide away from you and to keep on pursuing things it's it's this whole story truly and honestly it's not just about like the pretty relationship between tawny katane and david coverdale and her beauty and things like that and it's very that's that's important but it's more so about like how david coverdale went from one band and he kept on there and he really had this love of music that he kept pursuing and through thick and thin with White Snake, he really kept on with trying to get them bigger and better. And how can I make this better? How can I break to the American audience and show them what we're about? And how do I keep to myself? And how do I grapple with fame and keeping my private life private through all of this? And how do I write about these things? And how do I keep going? And all of that stuff. It's a really interesting story to me and truly I come away from this episode having a lot of respect for David Coverdale because I think you could probably consider maybe Whitesnake as like a throwaway hair metal band from the 80s and you kind of put them in that pot, you know, and that's fair, I suppose. But for me anyway, it, it's so much more than that. Like so many of these bands have a story that need to be told and I feel like it's in due my part to tell these stories because 
music has been there throughout my whole life. And I think I owe it to music as a whole to give back to it and to put these stories up front and center so that you have more of an appreciation for some of these popular songs and the story behind some of the tunes and albums and videos and people that you see on the TV or on MTV or on YouTube or whatever, you know. I hope that I've done my due diligence here and I happen to come away from this having, again, a lot of respect for David Coverdale and props, of course, to my girl, Tawny Catan. Like, she did her thing. Like, you know, that whole outfit is, a, is, is fire. And it's like, yeah, you know, here I am spinning and doing twirls and doing cartwheels on two Jaguars. But like, it cemented her place in the American subculture back in the day with MTV becoming very popular as well. And that's the new media for how you would obtain your music and you would hear of new bands and things. And you were seeing these people, what they looked like. Looks meant everything. Looks and visuals meant everything back then in the day. They still do, but they meant so much. And that's why David did what he did to change the look of the band as well. What more can I say? I think everyone should kind of give Whitesnake a bit of a chance. And again, listen to some interviews alone that David has done just talking about his life and his thoughts on the music industry and what he's contributed and, and what his thoughts and opinions are. He's a very eloquent and very well-spoken man. He's very, very cool and very sweet. And so that, as a whole, is the story of the relationship, kind of. I didn't go in depth about it. I mean, what's there to really say about the relationship between David Coverdale and Tawny Catan? Like, yeah, they were a hot item of the time. And they were very much like, he was good looking and she was good looking. They made an item together. They dated for two years, married for two years. They divorced. Time goes on, you know, whatever. But... That essentially is the relationship of David Coverdale, Tawny Catan, how Tawny helped to bring Whitesnake into the mainstream in America and help break them through, and the backstory of David's kind of rise to fame and how he dealt with it, and the story of Whitesnake as a whole. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I had the pleasure of researching this episode and learning more about David Coverdale and Tawny Catan. Great people, great story. I'm just going to leave it there. That's it. No more ranting and raving from me. That's good. That's it. No more. Mm -mm, I'm done. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys have an awesome day and I will see you guys next week with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye guys. Bye.